This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Education is a principal key to improving one's life. Historically, access to education and educational institutions have been limited. We recently discussed this in a show exploring the history and restoration of the Mars Hill Anderson Rosenwald School in Mars Hill, North Carolina. Today, Marcus and I want to look back at that show to address some of the remaining questions concerning the history of education among African Americans. Stay tuned and we'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and we're talking about education. I'm so glad to be here in the studio and glad to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going? I'm well. Looking forward to today's conversation, a very pertinent one on a number of levels. It really is. It's interesting that after we had that conversation about the Mars Hill Anderson Rosenwald School with Les Raker and Willa Wyatt, um, interesting conversation, a very informative conversation. You know, that conversation flowed out into the hallway and I think you and I even kept talking about that even after we left the studio and it just raised so many questions it was one of those shows that we both you and I felt that like uh, and wished that we had had more time to just kind of delve deeper into this issue, not only surrounding the Rosenwald schools themselves and Julius Rosenwald, but around education in general. Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole issue of education, before we even get to the actual uh, Mars Hill Rosenwald schools, um, is, is a major and particularly relevant issue to discuss right now because, in my view, and I'm sure you would agree with me, um, education is really um, a, a key ingredient in the construction of a, of a healthy, vibrant, vigorous democracy. And if your educational system is weak right, um, mm-hmm. or, or is not uh, stable, then I think you really are risking the health of your democracy. You really are. Yeah. And, you know, and Marcus, it's, you know, you bring that up and it, it just brings to mind even the founding of this republic. Mm-hmm. And despite the flaws of the founders, I mean, this system that, of government that we set up is probably one of the most, it's been one of the longest and most enduring democracies in the mm-hmm. world. Um, it, you know, has many challenges, but I think that that's what makes life, uh, the challenges that we face sometimes makes life interesting because we're constantly working on these things, trying to improve things. And I think about what it says in the Constitution itself and the preamble is to create a more perfect union. That is an mm. ongoing process and education plays a major role in it. And I think about Thomas Jefferson because you just yeah. brought up, you know, brought up this this point about education being so fundamentally important to the stability, to the stability of our community and to mm. the stability overall of the democracy. And Jefferson really, really felt that. Um, it's interesting that um, and he believed that he argued that that part of the, uh, the reason why he uh, instituted this project in the state of Virginia to create the University of, of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were variations in what he believed if we uh, dug deep into what he believed about education and who would actually have access to it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that when he was president, I have this book and it's on my bookshelf in my office called to his excellent excellency thomas jefferson when he was president and the third chapter of that book marcus deals with this uh deals is called is entitled youth and it is all of these people um when jefferson was president who would just write him about education and they were writing him in some cases asking him to actually uh financially support their efforts to to gain Mm. an education but it was interesting how at that time in the republic's history in the early republic how 
education really was seen as a door to the so-called middle class, a way to improve, to improve your life. It seems like we're kind of in a new space now, though. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Thomas Jefferson because I, we, I was just having this conversation with some students today. Um, and, you know, I, it, it is important to, to complexify Jefferson, but it's also important to note that, you know, for Jefferson, um, education was, was, was and, and really American freedom, uh, was tied to two things. Mm-hmm. One, the capacity or the ability to own land. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then two, education. Uh, and so there is an aspect of Jefferson's thought uh, which, which, seems not, which seems less than receptive to the notion that the broader American masses, right, um, are worthy of or capable of, of being uh, of, of, of earning education in this sense and of owning land mm-hmm. and, so and so forth and so and so forth and so on. And so it, it's, it's interesting to to confront the fact that historically in this country, um, there were class divisions, mm-hmm. um, socioeconomic class divisions that that helped to structure right the american mm-hmm. educational system that restricted access along class based lines along racial lines mm-hmm. um and i and i think that those those class based divisions and those race based divisions uh continue to to plague us uh to some to some extent today even though some some efforts have been made to mitigate those those mm-hmm. those divisions and, and increase access to education mm-hmm. um, but again I, I don't know that there's any any getting getting away from the fact uh, that that Jefferson's notion of liberty and freedom which was tied to land ownership um, and also education um, that notion is, of, of freedom was integrally connected to the American conception of education. Right, right. And I think the, the, the very reason that we're still having to, to have conversations about inequality within the context of, of American education um, is reflective of that older notion of, of, of American education with reference to uh, Jeffersonian liberty. Right. And, yeah. and Marcus, you're right. These things have legacies. They right? do. And they we're do. talking a lot about historical legacies. So I believe that you're right. I just had a conversation not too long ago with a former student um, <clears throat> who's now working on his master's degree and continuing that education process, which I'm so proud that he is actually doing. Someone, you know, who also would tell you comes from a very low income uh uh, family, but he education has really opened up the, uh, new doors for him. Mm-hmm. But he's had to, to, to. It's almost been, in some instances, some instances, a Herculean effort to move through that process. But it mm-hmm. is great to see how he is sticking to it and moving through. Um, all right, and we were discussing the whole issue of uh, how. The franchise itself, voting rights, were tied to property. So you, you are absolutely right to bring that up. And I think that that's something that we should revisit again it, to go back to in a deeper conversation. <laughs> uh, these, these conversations open up so many different lines of inquiry. But what I'd like to do, Arkansas, if we can, to talk a little bit about the Rosenwald School, uh, the Mars Hill Rosenwald School, that ongoing conversation that we had. What, what I found interesting, and even with our guests that day, that really 
this history of the Rosenwald schools themselves is still such a uh, hidden history for mm-hmm. so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, uh, we hosted the African Americans in Western North Carolina and Southern Appalachia Conference. We had one of the students. He is now graduated, going on to uh, to bigger things. I just, I mean, in fact, I just communicated with Chris McCoy not too long ago. He is uh, working with now working with Duke in, in uh, Energy, I believe. Duke Progress Energy um, finished his degree here, but he did did a undergraduate research project on the Rosenwald School in Shiloh, hmm. here, right here in Asheville, one of the African-American hmm. community I actually grew up in. But he was also making the point that until he, he made the point, at least, that until he took on that project, he had never heard of the Rosenwald Schools. Hmm. And so it, this, to me, is kind of reflective of how we are, our historical consciousness in this country. Yeah, and the question, the, the, the question that what you just um that the comments that, that you just made begs is why what accounts for this um for lack of a better word scant historical consciousness that really seems to typify um much of the american citizenry uh i think in perhaps in attempting to address that issue we have to, we have to of course uh, point to education to some degree, uh, give some attention to mm-hmm. to curricula, um, to what historical narratives are privileged, to how they're taught, uh, to what experiences are brought to the foreground, what experiences are sort of made to recede into the background, what experiences are erased entirely. Um, but I think we have to also talk about, in, in addition to that, um, th- and, and I know I'm speaking in, in broad strokes here, but I think that I think that it, it's safe to do that um, with some qualifications. But but I think the second point, we, the, the second point that we have to to think about is has to do with with this country's relationship to study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. To and, and I don't mean study strictly within the context of of, of a college classroom or university classroom, but self-study outside of the classroom, picking up books. <laughs> Um, pursuing questions that you have about American history, world history, your own family's history. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see much evidence that that, that kind of that kind of interest um, is a constituent or, or or an ingredient or an aspect of the American sociocultural experience. Maybe it was at some, at some point in the history in certain pockets of American society, but on the macro scale, I just see very little evidence that that, that, that was, was ever the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe if our educational system was, was structured differently, um, uh, people would, would, would complete their formal educational experience um, having acquired more of a commitment or having, I should say, developed more of a commitment to that kind of self-study. Right. Which, uh, would, w- which I think would result in a citizenry um, less less likely to be unaware, for example, of the Rosenwald schools and the importance of that history in places like Shiloh, Mars Hill, and elsewhere, even in this state. Right. I think, Marcus, I think you're right. I mean, you and I both have been... Um, 
to big cities. We've been to New yeah. York, and yeah. one of the things that strikes me about going to New York City is that it's in constantly in motion. In yeah. many cities are the same. You can go to Atlanta, constant motion. Go to Boston, constant motion. Uh, New Orleans, you see the same thing. It's interesting because we brought up Thomas Jefferson, and to think about Jefferson, Jefferson didn't like cities. And one of the reasons why he didn't like cities, because the, the the type of culture that a city actually produced. Um, the South, the South has its di- a different history, right? So because of the plantation culture of the old South, the antebellum South, the South was a highly aristocratic society. And it's, it's interesting because as you were saying, making the points that you were making about this whole issue of self-study, I couldn't help but think about Alexis de Tocqueville and de Tocqueville's uh, his his assessment of America. He looked at America and basically his assessment really focuses on what he sees in the North. He doesn't talk a lot about the South. The South is kind of left out of this. It, it makes me wonder what he was thinking. Um, his work is very prophetic. And I'm thinking that in his mind, he knew that the South that the culture that had been kind of cultivated in the South, this very aristocratic culture Mm -hmm. was eventually going to pass away because he's Mm -hmm. looking at that, at that happening in Europe, he himself having been an aristocrat, but he did notice that, you know, the North was in constant motion. So there was not this kind of um, this culture that we had here of being self-reflective. He, he actually criticizes Americans as being a very present minded people Mm -hmm. that we don't think historically. And we rarely think really into the, future. He mm-hmm. said we that Americans seem to be so anxious about earning and making as much as they possibly can and to the point that he he seems to suggest that they worry and they live in this anxiousness of never even enjoying the things that they actually are able to build. Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder, you know, that is not conducive to a, a reflective life. And, um, and and someone like Jefferson knew this. is ironic, I think, Marcus, when we think about Jefferson in this period, that the lifestyle that he was able to have as this kind of mm. aristocrat and this person who had the time to sit back and be reflective was actually a product or a byproduct of the fact that he was a slave owner as well, mm. right? So he had other people who were doing the labor. He so it's, time. And, yeah, so he had the leisure time because someone else is doing the labor. But I think that you're right, Marcus, and I think, can we find space? I mean, there are other examples I think that we could point to here. I I point to what Alexis de Tocqueville says about Americans. I think that what you say about self-study is important for us to think about in terms of a Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. How Frederick Douglass was able to educate himself, um, even under the circumstances that he's laboring under, mm-hmm. that he was living under uh, as a as a person who was enslaved. Think about probably I, I would argue our greatest president um, would be uh, Abraham Lincoln. If we mm-hmm. look to Lincoln and Lincoln was really self-taught, mm-hmm. um, but finding the time and the space, even in the wilderness, to take the time yeah. to actually study and to learn. Yeah, and and you know, going back to what you were saying about uh, um, uh, progress and and so forth, and and why Jefferson had an issue with cities in particular, um, on a sort of broader conceptual level, uh, I think about how what you're describing is really tied in many ways to how. Western societies, many Western societies conceive of time itself, mm-hmm. right? Time itself is this sort of linear thing that is understood through, through, through the language of progress. Mm-hmm. So you're always sort of moving forward. Um, and it, it and within that sort of conception of, t- of time, 
it can become very difficult to remember that there is a past um, and to figure out, okay, how do I talk about the past? And then how do I establish a relationship with the past? Mm -hmm. When I live within a society that really is, is constantly encouraging me to focus on this, this, this highly, this, this hyper linear way of thinking about time and, and, and of existing within history. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in many ways, uh, you know, the city, especially the modern Western city, embodies this linear, this linear theory of time. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's difficult to, to think about, okay, what is my relationship to what has come before? Uh, but, but sort of as you were saying, where does I mean, if, if you are not a member of the aristocratic class, if you are not a member of the elite economic class, if you are, if you are not a member of the elite political class, how do you find the time to do? This? How do you carve out the time to engage in self-study? Right. Where do you find the resources to pursue um, formal education? Right. And, and and these are some of the real on the ground um, brass tax issues mm -hmm. that um, the broader American masses um, are facing, right, right? Right, and and it's something that I think has to be at the forefront of any serious conversation in 2019 about the state of education in America. It is so, Marcus. So how we do education itself becomes important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking about what happens at the elementary, middle, and then high school level, but then also thinking about what is the role of academies of higher education. Mm -hmm. and what, Because I, I actually see that four-year period, the undergraduate period, if you choose not to go on to, a, uh, to graduate school, but that four-year period should be a period of time where you can stop yeah. and be reflective in that space. That's what, you know, and there are a number of people who are arguing this. Um, Anthony Corman, who uh, his book that he just published, um, I can't remember who the publisher is, but it was just recently published back in October uh, entitled The Assault on American Excellence, which looks at what the role of of higher education should be an argument he's making that it should create this space where people are able to do exactly what it is that that you and I are pointing to here. I want to talk about just briefly Marcus here because we've talked about knowledge being power and in my opinion in the history especially the early history uh, of, of the United States I can't say, believe that any other group of people had to have a great under a great understanding of knowledge and power and its connection to power than African Americans who were kept from artificially mm. and by law kept from uh, the processes by which we educate ourselves. So this brings us back to the Rosenwald schools right. and what was going on. You and I have talked about how. Education at that time was so important to African-Americans that came mm -hmm. up in that discussion mm -hmm. that they were willing to kind of double tax themselves. Yeah. And, you know, people like Eric Foner have talked about this in his work on Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. uh, James Lelutis, professor at uh, history professor at UNC Chapel Hill, who I had the opportunity to study with, has addressed this in, in his book on education in the New South, um, how African-Americans were willing to do whatever they could to to ensure an access to an education. You and I have talked a lot about uh, this this primary document that I love to use <laughs> in my in my history classes. Um, 
written a letter written by a, a former enslaved uh, person uh, named Jordan Anderson. Um, he wrote this letter because his former owner was trying to get him to come back to Tennessee from Dayton, Ohio. This is after the war is over to work for him. Mm. And so the exchange is interesting uh, for those of you in the audience who are interested interested in seeing more about or hearing more or reading more about Jordan Anderson in this letter. You can Google his name and you'll find the document. But one of the things, Marcus, that stands out, there are many things in this letter that stand that stand out to me, is is his closing of the letter because he's he's considering actually going back um, or at least testing um, the you know whether or not his former owner was serious about having him back. And one of the things he wants to know about is what will happen with he, not only he and his wife, but his two daughters. And he actually says at the end of that letter, he reads, he says, in answering this letter, please state if you would be uh, if if there would be safety for Millie and Jane, who are uh, who are now grown up and both good looking girls. He's talking about his daughters. Mm-hmm. Then he goes on to say at the very end of it, he says, uh, you will also please state if there have if there has been any schools open for the colored children in your neighborhood. The great desire of my life now is to give my children an education mm-hmm. and to have them form virtuous habits. So I think this letter speaks to how important access to education was for African-Americans. So this project that Julius Rosenwald kind of instituted in 1917, to me, is not surprising. And what he tried to do, I mean, and African-Americans' participation in it. But there are many issues about how this kind of this program actually developed. Right. Yeah. And you, you and I discussed that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about the about Jordan Anderson in this letter from, from what you just cited uh, is this. For African Americans, especially after the, after the American Civil War, um, education was not um, it was not a matter of it, it wasn't conceived as a leisurely pursuit. Um, it really was a matter of survival. It was a matter of okay, how do I protect my family? How do I protect my family's lineage? Um, what what tools are available are available to me that I could use to combat the social violence, the economic violence, and the political violence of American empire, mm-hmm. and and I think you know early African Americans among them Booker T Washington for example right. and and and, and WB Du Bois and others um, recognized that that education could be utilized in this manner, and so I think that part of what we're seeing, especially in Anderson's letter. Um, is the difference, the different and, and I think crucial relationship that African-Americans had to education as compared to, for example, someone like Jefferson um, related to education. Two very different ways of relating to education. Um, and so I, it's, and, and I think for that reason, perhaps, um, uh, the, 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 the results of education have been somewhat different in, in, in both in both arenas, right. in the white arena and the black arena, um, and again, those differences have have very clear historical reasons. Right, right. That that depending upon your level of of, of historical memory may or may not be available to you right, at, right. At, 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 at any given moment. <laughs> right. You know, so Marcus, I'm I'm curious because you bring up an interesting point there, or something that I would love for you to explore a little bit deeper here, because mm-hmm. you said that there are differences when you look at. Mm-hmm. Um, 
education among African Americans and then education among whites in America. Yeah. That's a difference. W- what are you thinking there? Yeah. Well, so 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 for example. Um, I'm thinking about the, the 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 ways in which Booker T. Washington and Du Bois differed on education. So Du Bois' approach was much more liberal, um, you know, sort of tying in more to the whole liberal arts model, which, mm-hmm. which is all about educate, education, ed- educating the whole person um, through freedom, um, uh, education, uh, education educating a person with the goal of, of, of holistic growth. Um, this was really the model of education that, that Du Bois privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, Booker T. Washington's approach to education was much, more, was capitalistic much more capitalistic, much mm-hmm. more pragmatic, I think. Um, and, and, and I think that that, that variation, even within the African-American community, of thinking about education is is very much reflective of 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 the differing approaches to education that I obtained with uh, across racial lines right mm-hmm. so so i think ironically um especially among the white aristocratic class education looked more like du boisian education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas among maybe even white working class uh, communities and certainly um, um, poor black communities, um, education made more sense within a Washingtonian model. All right. Um, you know, why would be, why, why, why be educated strictly in the world of ideas if these ideas can't be used to improve my quality of life? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, you know, can we reconcile these two approaches right. um, at all? And if not, what, you know, what do we do about that? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, Marcus, we're, we're kind of in that space where we're considering so. this Absolutely. now. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, as we look at the rise of AI Absolutely. and technology, you know, uh, it, I think these debates and maybe it's instructive for us to go back to Washington and Du Bois and mm-hmm. look at that to try to gain some perspective on how we move forward and how education looks into the future. Yeah, okay? I, I, I think so. But but again, the question is, and this goes back to an earlier point that I made. Um, how do we and I've and I've had this conversation with my students as well. How do we incentivize people to want to do that work? Right. This is hard. This is what we're describing is is no to, to use my mom's uh, language is it, more than a notion. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really is heavy lifting. It and is. the question becomes, you know, in this fast paced society, going back to your early point, earlier point in this society, which is which is which which which, which seems to celebrate instant gratification. Um, how do you incentivize Americans to, to right. do this hard work, to pause, as you said earlier, to pause, to choose to inhabit the sacred space of education? Well, um, you know, and improve them. Yeah, you, Marcus, you bring up another point, and I think you know, since time is kind of running yeah. on us here, th- this you know, we could talk about the challenges that we're currently facing with education, okay. and think about this article, and we're going to come back to this at some point. But I do want to get your take on it. But an article that you and I both recently read in the Atlantic magazine called "Education Is Not Enough," mm-hmm. and this is a philanthropist, a major philanthropist, who is saying, "Look, we've been pouring money into education, but perhaps." We need to kind of shift the focus, mm-hmm. and the focus needs to be on the issue of income inequality yeah. because that is contributing to the inability of certain people Absolutely. really to kind of take advantage of the education process. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think this is a key conversation to have because one of the points that Hanauer makes in that article has to do with what he calls educationism, right? This mm-hmm. notion that, 
you know, if we just give people equal access to education, that'll fix the 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 problems of, of unequal wealth distribution. It'll fix economic inequality. Hanauer is saying, no, it won't. Right. In fact, educationism is a very convenient perspective for those in power, for those with resources to take, because it doesn't require the sharing of 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 of, of economic resources. Right, and right. so, and so, I think it, it forces us to really to really confront the limitations of public education, education as a means to addressing inequality. Well, that's structure. a good way to leave us, and we'll have to come back to it. But we encourage you to kind of look up that article in The Atlantic yeah. called Education is Not Enough. Very thought-provoking and I think very appropriate for this conversation. But yeah. Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us, and we want to remind you again that The Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And we hope you enjoyed this conversation and we'll come back to it. Thank you. Take care.